I'd like to read words that are most often heard in this place as a call to prayer. They are beautiful words about the graciousness of God toward us that is focused to us through the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The last paragraph of Hebrews 4 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For almost all of us, spring is a delightful time of year. It's a time of year in which on a morning like this, we get up and we thank God for the privilege of being alive, for the privilege of being alive in Michigan, and of course, particularly for the privilege of being Christians who live in Michigan. And it's a time when the thoughts of many of us begin to turn toward favorite places. For some of us, that's a garden where we derive great satisfaction from turning the soil. From some of us, it's a golf course. For some of us, it's a lake. Very similarly, in our reading of the Bible, we understand that the whole book is the Word of God. We understand that it's best that we're familiar with everything that the Bible has to say, and we discipline ourselves from time to time to reading through the entire scriptures. But having said that, it is still true for every one of us that there are parts of the Bible that we enjoy more than others. There are favorite places for us in the Bible. We love the Psalms with their high view of God and their repeated cries for the faithful to fall at his feet and to sing his praises. We enjoy Proverbs with its inspired insights into human nature and relationships and into wisdom and folly. And we have a high regard for the Gospels with their records of the teachings and the acts of the one we have learned to call good. In the Gospels, one of my favorite places is the fourth chapter of Matthew, where we find the record of an event that we've come to know as the temptation of Jesus Christ. From time to time, we give our attention to this paragraph because it's important, perhaps because it's one of my favorite places. We've dealt with its individual trials, the ways in which Jesus was approached by Satan, trying to compromise him in one way or another. But today I'd like to look with you at the entire event and consider with you some of the lessons that we might derive from it. As we grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, we find that questions come to us, not doubts, but questions, things that we'd like to understand that the Bible doesn't seem to tell us directly. We wonder, for example, at various stages in his life, how thoroughly Jesus knew himself as the eternal Son of God, how thoroughly he understood his unique role in salvation history. And as he knew these things, when he knew them. As a boy, he must have heard the marvelous stories that his parents had to tell about the unique circumstances of his birth, tales involving the angels of heaven and the decrees of men, 
memories of the visits of shepherds and men called wise. As a lad, he must have become aware of differences between himself and his peers in the village of Nazareth. Kids from his Galilean neighborhood who resisted their parents' authority complained about household tasks they were required to do and laughed at things that really weren't funny. His interest in the scriptures and his knowledge of the things of God so far exceeded those of other boys in his age that we read that in Jerusalem, the teachers of Israel were astounded by his insights and questions. And at the young age of 12, he said, I must be about my father's business. But still we wonder at that age how thoroughly he understood what that business would be. By the time his ministry began, it's plain that his knowledge had increased. Very early in his life in the public arena, we hear him saying things like this. The theme of his early preaching was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To one of his first disciples, and referring to himself, he said, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And to a woman of Samaria who spoke of her confidence that the Messiah would come, he said, I who speak to you am he. Sometime between the discovery of his exceptional insights at the age of 12 and his first words spoken in public, something happened that sharpened his understanding of himself and his role in sacred history. That something I believe, was the combination of his baptism and his temptation. His baptism that was accompanied by the words from heaven, this is my beloved son, and his temptation that was characterized by the sneering questions of the evil one. Thus, these two events of which we read in our Unison Scripture reading this morning were pivotal in the life of Christ and in the history of salvation. The temptation of Christ is found in the first three Gospels. Mark makes just a passing reference to it, but Matthew and Luke both record it in full detail. In all three, it took place immediately after the Lord's baptism, and it was when he returned from the wilderness that John the Baptist saw him coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The setting for Christ's baptism was the fertile valley of the Jordan River, a stream that empties the Sea of Galilee and flows south into the Dead Sea about 75 miles away. The wilderness into which the Lord was driven by the Holy Spirit was that of Judea. It's been described as a hot, barren, desolate area that extends west from the Dead Sea almost to Jerusalem. It's about 35 miles long and 15 miles wide. It's a region of yellow sand and crumbling limestone and an area of contorted strata where the ridges run in all directions as if they were warped or twisted. The hills are like dust heaps. The limestone is blistered and peeling. The rocks are bare and jagged. And from this description, it seems obvious that the wilderness of Judea comes as close as being God-forgiven or God-forsaken as any other place on earth might be. 
We notice that from the less valley of the Jordan and the presence of people, many of whom were men and women hungering and thirsting after righteousness, Jesus was driven to the lonely wastes of the Judean desert by the Holy Spirit. We think about this contrast, and we think when we find ourselves in the sweetness of life, surrounded by those we enjoy, our way relatively free of danger and worry, a song in our hearts, laughter upon our lips, such times as these we recognize as being the gifts of God. But when we find ourselves in the desolate places of life, lonely, threatened, forlorn, no song in our hearts, no smile on our lips, these times we must recognize are also the gift of God. The God who declared Jesus to be his beloved son and the God who led him into the desolation of the wilderness to be tested are not two different gods. These are not the acts of a schizophrenic deity, one with two conflicting personalities. It was God the Father who blessed Jesus at the time of his baptism. It was God the Father who drove him into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. It is this God who causes us to rejoice in times of plenty and to trust in times of desolation. This is the God who assures us that he causes all things to work together for good. This is the God whose thoughts are beyond our own. This is the God who sovereignly presides over all things for the sake of his own glory and for the blessing of his own people. And this is the God who is always worthy of our confidence and deserving of our praise. As I read and think about Christ's temptation, I have questions to which I haven't been able to find satisfactory answers, perhaps because they're not available. One of them has to do with the fasting that is ascribed to Jesus in these records. I'm not sure whether we are to understand that for 40 days, Jesus literally ate and drank nothing at all, or that because of the pressure that was put upon him, he carried nothing into the wilderness with him and was forced to live off the land, which I assume would provide little more than that which is necessary to barely sustain life. In support of the second possibility is the lack of any statement in the Gospels that Jesus chose to fast and the clear implication that the fasting was forced on him by his circumstances. In either case, his condition was desperate. Matthew says he was hungry, making Matthew the master of the understatement. A second question has to do with the 40 days that both Matthew and Luke mention. A first reading of Matthew suggests that it was but the prelude to the Lord's encounter with Satan and that the entire time in the wilderness was longer than the 40 days while Luke seems to indicate that the entire time he was in the wilderness was this 40 days. Again, in either case, it was a period of intense deprivation and trial for the Son of Man. One of the lessons of the temptation of Christ has to do with the existence and the nature of Satan. 
Poll after poll indicates that the American people are very positive and hopeful in their religious views. They believe that there is good in the human heart, but are suspicious of claims that there's evil in the human heart. They believe in the love and the forgiveness of God, but they do not believe in his wrath and justice. They believe in heaven, but they do not believe in hell. They believe in angels, but they do not believe in demons. They believe in a personal God. They do not believe in a personal devil. And we note with dismay that many of those responding to these polls claim to be born-again Christians. Jesus believed in Satan. Jesus believed in Satan as a personal being. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He said to Peter, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. And here in the records of his temptation, Satan appears not as a metaphor for the weakness of the human spirit, but as a person. We can see the difference between what the people around us believe and what the Bible teaches. And we need to be very sure that our moral views and our religious convictions are shaped by the word of God and not by the godless culture in which we live. Matthew tells us that Jesus was led. The word is a strong word that really means impelled by the spirit into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by Satan. The word tempt in our English Bibles is an English translation of the Greek word parazo. This is a neutral term. It means simply to test something. A girl gingerly puts her toe in the water of a swimming pool to test its warmth. This is parazo. A man steps very carefully onto ice to determine whether it will support his weight. This is parazo. A miner carries a few nuggets taken from his mind into town to have them assayed. This is parazo. In the wilderness, Jesus was being put to the test. The measure was being taken of his faith and his character. And we wonder why this was necessary. Why did the Father put the Son through this ordeal? That it was deliberate is plain. That it was deliberate means that it has a purpose, but the Bible does not tell us directly what that purpose was. We're left to think about it and to guess. Could it be, we wonder, that the Father wanted to know something about the Son that he didn't already know? To those who have a lesser God than ours, this possibility might make sense. But the God that we find revealed on the pages of Scripture is an omniscient God. That means he knows everything that can be known, and this knowledge of God is actual. It is not merely potential. At this point, the Father knew the Son better than the Son knew himself. And to increase the Father's knowledge of the Son cannot possibly be the reason that Jesus was put to the test. Another suggestion is that the purpose of the temptation of Christ was to reveal him more fully to Satan. And I suppose that someone could argue this, but I'm hard-pressed to tell you why they might argue this. 
We read earlier in the Gospels that Satan had already used the swords of Herod's soldiers to try to destroy Jesus. And no one conversant with the Bible could argue that if the devil only understood who Jesus really is, that he would repent of the evil that he represents and perhaps be saved and restored to his position in glory. Satan had led a rebellion against God in heaven and had been cast out. He was condemned. Satan lives under a curse. There is no hint in Scripture that he can ever be saved and no hint that he would want to be if he could be. It makes no sense to say that the temptation took place in order to more fully reveal Christ to Satan. A third possibility, and I think you would agree a more likely one, is the temptation of Christ occurred for the edification and the instruction of believers. This seems reasonable. And there certainly are important lessons that we learn by studying and contemplating this event we call the temptation of Christ. Lessons about the reality of Satan and the temptations of the flesh. Lessons about the chief means at our disposal for gaining victory in times of temptation. Lessons about the Lord's understanding of the trials that we face in the flesh. But it would seem that all of these things could simply be taught by the Lord. It would not require him to go through the awful ordeal of the temptation in the wilderness. And so our question, if it is partially answered, is not fully answered. But there's a fourth possibility, a suggestion that I believe comes closer to answering our question about the reason for the temptation than any of these others. In the Old Testament, we read that in his call to Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, God was testing this ancient man of faith. When we reflect on this incident, we realize that the one who benefited most from it was Abraham. God learned nothing about Abraham that he didn't already know. Isaac doesn't appear to have gained much from the experience. But in his obedience, Abraham learned much about himself and his willingness to do anything, to make any sacrifice in order to please and to honor God. And he could not have known that about himself apart from that test. I think that there's a good possibility that something like that was happening in the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. He had just been baptized and had heard a voice from heaven declaring, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Soon he would step into the public arena and begin to gather and train those men who would become the leaders of the church that he was sent to establish. It was important at that very beginning point that he have a clear understanding of who he is and the enormous cost to him of the work that he had come to do. Jesus was sent into the wilderness, in my opinion, primarily to reflect on the scriptures that identified his role in sacred history, including the suffering that would mark its end. There was a time in the United States when it was almost fashionable for young people to wander off into the wilderness of myth and hedonism and LSD 
looking for themselves. There they would take their places beside Narcissus, staring fondly at their own reflection in the still waters of a pool and waiting for that aha moment that would never come. But in spite of its abuses, the who am I question is not an unimportant one to ask. I believe that at least a part of the reason for the temptation was for Jesus, now affirmed by God the Father, now accompanied by God the Spirit, about to begin the phase of his work that would end only at the cross to gain a complete answer to this who am I question. And the answer could come only from the scriptures. Like the answers to many of the questions that plague us in life, the answers do not come in public opinion polls, from bull sessions with friends, from quiet reflection, as somehow we have the truth deep within us, but they come from the pages of the Word of God. There's abundant evidence that Jesus was already thoroughly and deeply familiar with the scriptures. This time in the wilderness, away from all distractions, was a time of concentrated, focused meditation on the scriptures in general, and particular as the Wharton word defined him as a person and shed light on the purpose for his coming in the likeness of men. And the fruit of these contemplations was a kind of Christology, a systematic understanding of what the Bible says about his person and his work. We find evidence that he did this kind of thinking at some point in his life because it comes out in his teachings. For example, in John 5, he spoke to zealous but unbelieving Jews. And he said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me, he said. And in Luke 24, we find Jesus talking with a disciple named Cleopas, who had left Jerusalem on eager Easter Sunday and was going home to Emmaus. And a part of their conversation is summarized in this way. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This thorough knowledge of what the scriptures teach about Christ may have been gained by the Lord but was certainly honed to a fine edge by his contemplations in the wilderness and his responses there to the temptations of Satan. It would not be an inappropriate exercise for all of us, male and female, young and old, to try to answer the who am I question. We'd probably begin by saying, well, I'm so-and-so, and we would give our name. And we'd add, I'm the daughter or the son of this man or this woman, and we would name our parents. We might speak of our ethnic heritage, our education, our work. We might identify ourselves with marriage and family. To further define ourselves, we'd say, I collect coins, or I love outdoor sports, or I enjoy woodworking or car cooking. And we'd add some personal traits as I'm often crabby in the morning or I'm happy on rainy days, or I can't put a good book down, or I like having other people around, or I love going down roads I've never been down before. But sooner or later, if this effort to answer the who am I question is going to be complete, we have to make references to the Almighty. And we have to say, I 
am a creature. I am a special, individual creation of God. And that would then force us to the conclusion that if we are created, then our lives have purpose. And the realization that the only satisfactory answer to the who am I question is given by the person who knows what the purpose of his life is and is diligently pursuing that purpose. That Jesus answered that question in the quietness of the wilderness is suggested by the energetic focus on his work recorded in the first two chapters of John. There, the apostle seems almost breathless as he writes of the first day and the second day and the third day, as if the Lord there was hurrying from place to place and from person to person, laying the foundation for the work the Father had sent him to accomplish. That we will find joyful meaning in life only as we define ourselves and our lives in terms of the grace and purpose of God is, I believe, one of the lessons of Christ's temptation. And one final point needs to be made as we reflect on the lessons of the temptation for us. In Hebrews 4, we read that in Jesus, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. The picture here on the one hand is of an arrogant religious leadership of men who were proud of their positions, who loved to be seen in their tasseled robes and to be heard offering their eloquent prayers, but men whose minds are far from God and whose hearts are cold to those conscious of their need for mercy and earnestly long above all else to know that their sins are forgiven. Their sneering contempt for the lowly righteous is mirrored in their spiteful hatred of Jesus himself. But our Lord Jesus Christ, robed in a splendor that would be the envy of any priest if he could but see it, speaking with an authority infinitely greater than theirs, and praying with an eloquence that made their finest offerings seem like raucous rantings of the insane, is the same one who opens his heart and cries out to those who will hear, Come unto me, and you will find rest for your souls. This Jesus, the Word become flesh and dwelling among us, who in the wilderness and on the cross was tested in ways that exceed by far anything you and I will ever have to face, now understands and sympathizes with us in our struggles with the temptations of life and invites us into the very throne room of God that we might find mercy and healing. The conclusion of this sermon is the conclusion of this paragraph. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for these records of what we call the temptation of Christ. We struggle, our God, to visualize and imagine the scope of of his agony there in the wilderness, of his loneliness, of his hunger, and finally his being confronted by the prince of evil himself. We understand, our God, that this happened. We understand that it was instrumental in Jesus' life 
but we also understand that in it there are important lessons for us, lessons about the reality of Satan, about the reality of trials, about our need to know your word if we're going to be victorious in those trials. And finally, of the sympathetic understanding of the one who was tempted and then died in our place and now bids us come. May these lessons be ours, we pray in his name. Amen.